I was just going to introduce you to <laughs> so it's just, a just little... That, just that button there. Okay. All right. I just want to show you a little bit more of what God is doing in his world, just to send you home encouraged. So I want to go back to 1780. So we're going back 240 years. And if you look at the yellow areas of the map there, that's the areas of the world where the evangelical church was established 240 years ago. There were expressions of the evangelical church in other parts of the world, Scandinavia, not many. This is the area where the evangelical church was established just 240 years ago. Jesus had said, go into all the world. But the geographical spread of the church of Jesus Christ was very limited 240 years ago. And then the Moravians began to pray. Come to the session this afternoon. They began to pray and they began to move. And they were followed many years later by Kerry here in the UK. And what we call the modern missionary movement began. And the last 200, and you can go forward to 250 years really, have been years of complete triumph. This is clearly not a charismatic meeting. I normally get some hallelujahs. <laughs> it's 250 years, that's 200 years, but it goes on, of complete triumph for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I said yesterday, years, decades of harvest around the world. Maybe graphs will excite you more than, than maps. 1900, the red cube there at the bottom, uh, the Christian church is hardly established, it's an evangelical church, outside of the Western world. From 1900 to 1960, amazing years of pioneer missionary endeavor, the church begins to get a hold outside of the Western world. But in my lifetime, my ministry lifetime, and most of yours as well, the epicenter of the world church has moved. Christianity is no longer a Western religion. It's a global religion. Where is the center of Christianity today? Well, it's very, very hard to say. Is it Latin America? Is it Africa, south of the Sahara? Is it Asia? It's certainly not Europe. There's three examples of church growth. I mentioned South Korea yesterday. Indonesia is remarkable because, of course, it's a Muslim country. And yet there's more than 30 million followers of Jesus today in the islands of Indonesia. And then the remarkable story of the People's Republic of China. Just, to get you too, just in case you get too excited, I don't think there's danger of that, but in case you get too excited, this is the world situation today. The blue cube at the bottom there are those who claim to be Christians. So about 30%, 32 maybe, of the world's population would claim to be Christian this morning. That is remarkable if you think about it. Here is a carpenter's son in a forsaken province of the Roman Empire. He doesn't go to university, he doesn't write a book, he doesn't even write a blog. And yet today... Almost a third of the world's population would say, yep, yeah, I follow that man, Jesus. It's quite remarkable. How many would be evangelical in conviction? Very hard to say, but maybe around 5-6% of the world's population would have 
evangelical conviction today. 25% are reached non-Christians. They're within the reach of the existing church. If the church is witnessing and evangelizing, they will be reached by the existing church. Uh, 40%, maybe 38 today, we call unreached people. This doesn't mean there's no Christians amongst these people, but it means there's no indigenous worshipping group amongst these people groups. Uh, we have to get the message in from outside. The gospel is not going to come from within. So preferably through human beings, but if not through human beings, television, radio, internet, literature, we have to get the gospel into these last remaining, for those of you who are interested, 7,163 unreached people groups in the world today. Where do they congregate? Um, that's the most unreached area of the world today. We call it a 1040 window, 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator. There you've got all the Muslim peoples of North Africa, the Middle East, the Hindus of India and Nepal and the Buddhists of East Asia. The 1040 window. But I call Europe the window sill. This is probably the second most unreached area of the world today. Second only to the Middle East. The tragedy of Europe. What was the sending continent even a hundred years ago and still needs to be a sending continent is also one of the great targets for mission today. I wish you could be with me in a South Korean missionary prayer meeting. You'll be interested to know who they're praying for. They're praying for Europe. They're praying that God will send their young people to Europe. You probably know that some of them are coming to Wales, particularly here, with the good news of Christ. So God is doing incredible things in his world today. And I hope you're going to go home encouraged by that. That's nothing to do with Matthew chapter 4, but let's get back to it. Matthew chapter 4, and we'll begin to read at verse 1. <clears throat> then Jesus... I do apologize if I've been slightly faltering in my delivery in these sessions. I'm actually in the middle of a series of laser eye surgery things. I keep looking at my notes and, and they go blurred and it's very confusing. Um, I'm hopeful that within about three weeks they'll be back to normal. But if I've been slightly faltering, please understand I'm struggling sometimes to see my notes. Matthew 4 verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, 
throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So Satan's suggestion was that rather than trusting in the promise of his father to provide, he should take matters into his own hands. Tell, command the stones to become bread. And as we saw yesterday morning, Satan failed. Jesus resisted this advance. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But Satan does not give up without a fight. Certainly in this situation, remember these are critical days in the whole history of redemption. So Satan is not going to give way easily. Then the devil took him to the holy city. There's been much uh, discussion over the years as to whether Jesus physically went to the temple, whether he went to the high mountain from which in the third temptation uh, Satan would show him all the kingdoms of the world. There is, of course, if you take that statement literally, no such mountain where all the kingdoms of the world can be seen. So the majority of interpreters see these two temptations as taking place in a vision. So we move from the wilderness, from the wilderness, to the most public place, the temple in Jerusalem. Not just a, a public place, but a holy place. Lesson for us all, you can never let your guard down. If you're going to be victorious in the battle against Satan's temptations, you must always be on your guard. If Satan can't bring him down in the solitary loneliness of the wilderness, he will bring him to that most public place and that most holy place, the temple. It is for me, at least, the case that some of my most intense times of temptation come when I'm having my quiet time or I'm on an extended period of spiritual retreat. I remember Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that at those times when he was in the word of God, seeking to fill his mind with thoughts of God, just then, Satan would assail his mind with the most vile, loathsome suggestions. Whether you're on the, in the desert, solitary, or the public place, the holy place, we must always be on our guard. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down. Because it's written, isn't it? 
He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It's interesting that Satan says, cast yourself down. Surely, a little nudge from the enemy and we would have been gone. But Satan's powers always have their limits. You see that from the experience of Job. It was God who set the boundaries of Satan's tempting of his servant. And of course, God is still doing that. Still setting the boundaries when it comes to temptation. Paul assures the Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He sets the boundaries. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out, a way of escape so that you can endure it. These are hugely important things to take into account when you're grappling with temptation. Satan can persuade me to sin, but he cannot compel me. I may feel the force of temptation is irresistible. How often have you been in the counselling situation and the person you're talking to says, you know, I just couldn't help myself. Answer, you could. You could. Satan can only go so far. His boundaries have been set by a faithful God. And the assurance from our Father is he will not let us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. There always will be, if we choose to take it, that way of escape. Of course, if Satan had pushed him down, then the force of the temptation would have been immediately lost. So what is the real force behind this second temptation? Well, again, you have to go back to Israel to understand the force. Israel was promised time and again, not only God's protection, provision, but also his protection. If you keep the terms of the covenant, I will always provide for you. I will always protect you. Remember how God said he'd carried Israel on eagle's wings, lovely picture, and brought them to himself, referring to Israel as Jacob In the song God gave to Moses, we read this. In a desert land, he found him. He found Israel. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. It's interesting that from ancient times, the temple was considered to be a symbol of God's protection. It was a a place of inviolable sanctuary, a refuge from enemies. Remember, David could write of longing to dwell in your tent, in the temple forever, 
and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. But promised God's provision, promised God's protection, what did Israel do, for example, at Rephidim? They camped there and found there was no water. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses' reply shows the force of the second temptation of Christ. Moses replied, why do you put the Lord to the test? He's promised to provide. He's promised to protect. Why do you put him to the test? So they called the place Massa and Meribah. Massa meaning, meaning testing and Meribah meaning quarreling. They were testing God as they demanded water. And you can see from Exodus 17 and verse 7 exactly what they wanted to know. Is the Lord among us or is he not? That was the test they were inviting God or carrying out. They were in a covenant relationship with him. They'd been promised provision and protection within that covenant. And in a moment of difficulty, they're saying to God, prove it. Prove it. Prove you're committed to us. Prove that you're able. Prove that you're willing to provide and to protect. Prove that you keep your promises. God is absolutely within his sovereign rights, within the covenant, to test us, his people. But it's seen in scripture as a grave religious offense for us to test God. He's made his covenant commitment to us. And when the evidence seems against it, we are still call to trust him completely. I think Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are a magnificent example. They refuse to bow down to the image Nebuchadnezzar has erected. And even when this is discovered and they're warned of the consequences, their refusal to bow continues. If you do not worship it, Nebuchadnezzar rages. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? At that point, there's no sense at all from these three men of God. Now is your time to show yourself. Now is your time to prove yourself, to prove your faithfulness and your promises, to show us that you're with us. Now is the time for you to reveal yourself. No, there's just a quiet, utter trust and confidence in God's covenant and in God's power. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who serves, served, served, whom we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, we're not serving your gods. We're not worshipping the image you have set up. 
many preachers have asked the question, do you have the even if he doesn't faith? Even if he doesn't answer my prayer in the way I wish he would, even if he doesn't immediately reveal himself in this moment of crisis, I know the covenant remains. I know the promises are sure and I will not bow. Horatius Boner is probably my favorite hymn writer. The clouds may go and come. The storms may sweep my sky. This blood-sealed friendship changes not. The cross is ever nigh. So that was the force of this second temptation. Jesus You've heard the voice. You remember the words. This is my son whom I love. But look at the situation. What father, come on, what father would leave his son alone in the wilderness without food when he has the ability to provide? Surely you need confirmation. You need a sign. Come on. Throw yourself down. And as you do so, you've got a specific promise you can hold on to. He will command his angels concerning you. You won't even strike your foot against a stone. Jesus' answer shows the force of the temptation. It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, doesn't the Lord challenge us to test him? And of course, he certainly does. Malachi 3.10 is a popular example. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there won't be enough room to store it. And yes, God does want us to stand on his promises. He wants us to take him at his word, to move forward on the basis of his promises, even when the fulfillment is not yet visible. That was the wonderful reality for so many of the heroes of, heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. They didn't receive the things they promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. So faith is a confidence in what we hope for. It's an assurance. It's a standing on the promises of what we do not see. So God wants us to move forward on the basis of those promises, standing firmly upon them, but never to test him In the sense of saying, now I need a miracle in order to know that you are with me. In order to know that the covenant holds. I need a miracle to be assured that you're faithful and that you're able. Well, unsuccessful in the temple, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain. 
And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you'll bow down and worship me. I, I, I think that's probably a shortened version of the conversation. I, I may be wrong. I may be using my imagination too much. But I wonder if it went something like this. Jesus, why did you come to this earth? Well, I came to inaugurate, to establish the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Okay. Okay. There it is. That it is. All you came to this earth to achieve. All the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. They're yours. Yours for the taking. No cross. No tears. No pain. No weakness. Just bow once. Once. And it's all yours. Everything you came to achieve sits on a plate before you. Just bow. You have to ask again, what is the real force behind this temptation? And once again, you need to go back to Israel. And you need possibly to go to the top of another mountain. It's that rather sad scene on the top of Mount Nebo, where God shows Moses the land the land Israel is to possess. Though, of course, Moses won't step foot on it. What a land it was, flowing with milk and honey. But it was also a land which was full of dangers. You remember the high places, which became a constant problem in Israel. Places of idolatrous worship. So although this was a beautiful, fruitful land which possessed everything that Israel needed, the potential problems as they prepared to move into it, the potential problems were pointed out right from the beginning. You remember uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema of Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. One God, no idolatry. And then the warning. Deuteronomy 6 verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you didn't build Houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide. Wells you didn't dig. Vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So right there at the beginning as they prepare to move into the land, there are warnings of greed there are warnings of idolatry. And again, you can go back to the Garden of Eden and you see that all that Adam and Eve require is there for them. But is it enough? Is it enough? Is greed going to win the day? Well, Adam failed 
the temptation in the garden. Israel failed it constantly, both in the desert and in the land. Deuteronomy 31 verse 20 When I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their ancestors, and when they eat their full and thrive, they will turn to other gods, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. Deuteronomy 32.15, Jeshurun, one of the um, names of Israel, Jeshurun, grew fat and kicked Filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them. Rejecting the rock, their saviour, they made him jealous with foreign gods. Israel and Adam fall to the power of riches, greed and idolatry. And here's the Son of God facing these same temptations in the wilderness. And the power of the temptation is seen in the statement Jesus made, probably not too long after this incident with Satan in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve both God and mammon. The rabbis defined all the might and power and wealth of the world as mammon. It wasn't just money. Power, wealth, money, that's mammon. And that's the temptation. Are you, Jesus, going to go the way of human power, human influence, human wealth? You can have your kingdom. You can sit on a throne. Think of all the good things you could do if you sat on that throne. But you can't sit on that throne without idolatry. Not without trusting in the things, rather than simply trusting me, your father, to give you the kingdom at the time of my appointing. What's it to be? The way of human power, the way of human influence, or the way of the cross. The moral majority in the US, well, they tried it, didn't they? They believed if they could get their people elected to political office, then they could control the decision-making processes of government, enforcing their will, enforcing their morality on the entire American public. Has it worked? Tony Campolo whom you may not totally love, Tony Campolo, amazing guy, tells a story of how he and one or two others became very upset with a multinational corporation. It was called the Gulf and Western Corporation. They were producing sugar in the Dominican Republic. They decided to buy shares in the company so they could go to the shareholders' meetings and champion the changes they thought were necessary for the well-being of the Dominican people. They believed much of the land which was used to grow sugar should be used to grow food. At first they joined forces with others who had similar concerns, but their attempts totally failed. It caused them to evaluate their methods, and they began to reflect on whether Jesus would force a company to do what is right, use coercion 
as a means of bringing about justice. So they changed their tactics totally. They went to the company's executives and they went as friends, asking if they might be willing to work together to improve the life and the conditions of the people. Well, to cut a very long story short, and it's a very long story, the company was soon growing food on all the land where food growth was possible. Only land that couldn't sustain food growth was used to grow sugar. The company uh, also committed to invest, I think it was $100 million on social, economic, and educational projects to improve the quality of life of the Dominican people. And the company, which had been listed as one of the ten most immoral corporations in the world, became a shining example of a corporation trying to exercise moral responsibility even as they made profit for their shareholders. Imagine you'd never read the first, or imagine you'd never read the Bible before. You're picking it up and you're reading it for the first time. Garden of Eden, fall, murder in the first family, Noah, the flood, evil throughout the world, Tower of Babel. You get to the end of chapter 11 and you're thinking, whoa, I don't want to turn the page. This is awful. Surely it's 12, Genesis 12, it's it's going to be all about destruction, isn't it? It's going to be all about judgment. It's going to be all about God washing his hands of the human race. But no, in the most astonishing statement of the Bible, God says, I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm not going to eliminate humanity. I'm determined to provide global blessing. Every people group, every nation on earth is going to be blessed. How? How? Well, I'll start with the family, says God. The family will become a nation. That nation will be a blessing to the nations of the world. So surely you'll be looking for a young couple, won't you? You'll be looking for a young couple planning for family, planning for babies. No. This elderly, barren couple. That's where I'll start. I'll start in utter vulnerability, utter weakness, utter impossibility. That's where I'll begin. I I, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the AD 2000 movement. Do you remember that movement? For the last 20 years before the turn of the century, mission groups around the world got together to plan, to manage the evangelization of the world. By the year 2000. That was the clarion call. We're going to do it. We're going to evangelize the world by the year 2000. I sat in meetings around the world with mission leaders. How many people do we need? Uh, what kind of videos do we need? And every you know, aspect of what was required to evangelize the world by the year 2000. And then some mission leaders and theologians from what we used to call in those days the two-thirds world. The global south joined our meetings. And many of them came from cultures of Christian suffering, great vulnerability, great weakness, 
It wasn't long before they were, in a very godly way, accusing us of what they called management missiology. So you're going to manage your way, are you, to the evangelization of the world by two thousand. You know how to do it, do you? You know exactly the kind of number of people you need, and the re- you, did, you know it all, do you? You're just going to manage your way. Now, many wonderful things came out of that management process. But that was a really challenging, actually life-changing message uh, for many mission leaders. I remember one mission group, they were based in Hong Kong. Their, their mission was to take the gospel behind the Iron Curtain, and they were good at it. So good that the Lausanne people, Lausanne Congress people, asked them to do the paper before a Lausanne conference, the paper on how to evangelize behind the Iron Curtain. They spent days, weeks, putting it together. It was a brilliant paper. The, the, the planning committee said it was the best paper to be presented to the conference. Three days before the conference, the Iron Curtain came down. <laughs> and they came to the conference and they said we were sitting there saying, God! You can't do this. Not now. Not now. Been praying for it for I don't know how many years. So they got together after the conference to, to, to redesign, I guess, their mission. And they needed a new purpose statement. Previously, it had been very easy. We want to see the Church of Jesus Christ planted in all the nations behind the Iron Curtain. What was their new purpose statement going to be? This is what they came up with. We're a bunch of fools trying to keep up with what the Holy Spirit of God is doing. (laughs) What's it going to be? Human management, strength, assertiveness, or the cross? The cross. The cross. Never remember, never forget the Gideon factor in ministry. You have too many people for me to deliver Israel. What's your personal strategy? How often I hear from missionaries unwilling to continue in ministry because they just find it so difficult to go on relying on raising personal financial support. I don't know whether you're in that world. I've been in that world for 50 years. Raising personal financial support to live and to minister. Now these people are quite willing to give everything they have to the people they're serving. But they find it so humbling to constantly rely on the generosity of God's people. As they give themselves to those to whom they minister, they are in control. They decide how much and how they give themselves. When it comes to the matter of personal support, you become the receiver. There's no way you are in control. I think we're sometimes afraid to appear to be in need because it makes us feel and appear utterly powerless. Jesus... Think of all the influence you could bring to bear if you just bow the knee once to me. Then you'll have your power. Then you'll have your throne. Then you can rule. 
Matthew 16, Jesus is explaining to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer, I must be killed. Never, never, Lord, says Peter. That's not the way of the Messiah. That's not the way of rule. That's not the way of dominion. You have to establish your kingdom. You have to deliver your people. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block today. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, must take up his cross, that symbol of weakness, that symbol of vulnerability, must take up his cross and follow me. So now, Jesus dismisses Satan. Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. That takes us full circle, doesn't it? We began by recognizing that this is a crucial point in the whole history of redemption. Where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus is now tested And what a glorious result. Satan is dismissed. And angels come to minister to his needs. But I'm also pretty sure they came to celebrate his victory. Jesus took on Satan for me and for you. And by faith, as we are tempted, we can share in his victory. And the question is always the same. Are you going to bow to the enemy's suggestions or choose to submit yourself to every word that comes from the mouth of God? Please pray for me that I will be in the position of submission as I pray for you. Let's pray together.